Welcome to Dayspring Fellowship. I really am so excited that you've decided to join us for this service. You know, people come to church or watch a church service online for lots of reasons. I don't know why you decided to join us today, but here's something I do know. God is at work in your life, and He's brought you here to this place in this moment to accomplish His purposes. Since people grow here, you will leave changed. I trust His work in your life. So can you. I'm Chris Voigt, and I lead the pastoral team here at Dayspring. We have a fantastic team who work tirelessly to help people grow. We love helping you discover the best path forward to deepening your spiritual roots, whether you are here in the room or watching online, live or on demand at some point in the future. If you are visiting Dayspring today, we want you to know that we are a come-as-you-are kind of church. We don't have any perfect people here. We are all in process, working through our junk, and sometimes that is a messy process. So if you can embrace our mess, we'll embrace yours, and together we'll let God work to clean it all up. And if you're just checking out Jesus and church, this is a safe place to bring your questions and doubts. We're all on a journey. And wherever you are on your journey, welcome. You can learn more about us as a church by exploring our website at dsf.church, by checking out our Facebook page, or contacting us by phone or email. If you need help figuring out the next step to making Dayspring your home church, or if you just have questions, let us know. We'll help you find the answers. For today's service, you can find study questions by selecting Watch from the top menu of our website. And now... Let's join our service. I am an only child. An only child with five siblings, to be exact. Now that should be no surprise to those, for those of you who have been around Dayspring for a while. Uh, Mom and bio dad had me and then separated and divorced. They went on to marriages and other kids, giving me the privilege, I guess, of technically being an only child and at the same time being the older half-brother to some pretty great brothers and sisters. Now, I guess you could say, uh, again, uh, technically, that I am my parents' favorite child. (laughs) I mean, they only have one. (laughs) But I also guess that makes me their only problem child. However, when it comes to which child is the favorite of my mom, we have a little sibling rivalry going on. I say it is my baby sister, Courtney. She says that it's me. My middle sister, Tiffany, couldn't care less and thinks it's stupid. But if push came to shove, she would probably side with me. So I win, Courtney, and I have the microphone, so take that. Now, can you imagine how it must have felt to be the brothers and sisters of Jesus? Oh, sure, Jesus walks on water, doesn't ever do anything wrong, always does his chores with excellence, without nagging. He never gets his screen time taken away. (laughs) Like, what would it have been like to grow up with Jesus as your brother? Did Mary and Joseph tell them the story of their brother's spectacular beginnings? Or, I guess, did they already know? 
The Bible doesn't give us this information, so we can't really be dogmatic about it. But there is a church tradition that believes that Mary was a virgin for her entire life. And that Joseph was a widower who brought kids from his first wife into the marriage with Mary, making her a stepmother and giving Jesus step-siblings. But I think that's a bit of a stretch since Matthew 125 tells us that after Jesus was born, Joseph and Mary consummated their physical relationship. I think it's more likely that they went on to have more sons and daughters. Whatever it was like growing up with the perfect son as your brother, what we do know that as adults, his siblings didn't believe he was the Messiah. In fact, Mark chapter 3 verse 21 tells us that they thought he was crazy and wanted to shut his ministry down. The only evidence of life change in Jesus' siblings came after the resurrection. At some point, Jesus appeared to his brother James, who only then had a change of heart and went on to become a leader in the Jerusalem church. He also gave us the book of James, which is included in the New Testament. Now, if you're joining us for the first time today, here in the room or online, uh, we are working our way through the Gospel of John. At this point, we've already covered lots of background information that is helpful to understanding John's Gospel. Feel free, please, feel free to go back and listen to or watch those messages if you'd like a more complete picture of the setting for this Gospel. Matthew was written to try to convince the Jews that Jesus was their promised Old Testament Messiah, the King of the Jews. Mark presented Jesus to the Romans as the perfect servant. Luke focused on Jesus as the perfect man in his writing to the Greeks, and all of those aspects of Jesus were completely true, but from John's perspective, uh, obviously under the, the, the power of the Holy Spirit, incomplete. Jesus was all that and more. John didn't want us to miss that Jesus was fully man, but he was so much more than just a man. He was fully God himself in the flesh, on earth, out of love for us to make a way for us to have a relationship with him. John wanted us to believe in Jesus in a way that propelled us to act on that belief. From John's perspective, it isn't belief unless it moves from head knowledge to surrender. Obedience to Jesus is the evidence of belief. Disobedience equals disbelief. John wanted us to believe. He's building a, a case, giving us the evidence we need to render a verdict for our own lives. And as we saw last week, when Jesus presented his court case to the Jewish leaders, even in the face of irrefutable evidence by the standards of their own legal system, these Jewish leaders chose the path of disobedience. They chose to dig in their heels and double down in their efforts to hold on to the legalistic prison they had built for themselves. Even in the face of a couple of pretty spectacular miracles, which hopefully you studied this past week as you did your homework in chapter 6. Speaking of homework, I saw this on Insta this week. Uh, good old Jake Peralta from uh, Brooklyn 99. I've totally read the Bible. <clears throat> oh yeah? Name four books. John. That's on me. I set the bar too low. 
Hey, Dayspring is the kind of church that sets the bar high. We want our roots to grow deep and wide. That takes effort. Not to earn Jesus' approval. We already have that, whether we do the homework or not. But to prove out our belief. Now, go ahead and turn to chapter 7 in the Gospel of John. Uh, This week, we're going to change it up. We're going to work our way through chapter 8 today, which means chapter 7 is your homework for this coming week. In chapter 7, it's time for another pilgrimage to Jerusalem festival, uh, the festival or feast of shelters or tabernacles, or booths, depending on your translation, which was a a harvest feast. The Feast of Tabernacles was a celebration. It looked back on Israel's 40-year journey through the wilderness and looked forward to the promised kingdom of Messiah. As part of the festival, the temple area was lit by large candlesticks symbolizing the pillar of fire that guided them uh, by night through the desert. And each day the priests would carry water from the pool of Siloam and pour it out from a golden vessel to remind them of God's provision of water from the rock. During the week-long event, the Jews lived in booths or shelters made of branches to remind them of God's care for the nation during that 40-year trek. Jesus has been traveling around Galilee and his brothers show up on the scene to take him to Jerusalem with them. They essentially taunt him to try to get him to go with them. He declines and then makes his way to Jerusalem on his own. There he teaches, there is controversy, and the Jewish leaders amp up their opposition to him. That's all you get from me. Homework, people. Homework. So let's pick it up in the last verse of chapter 7, verse 53. There we see, then the meeting broke up and everybody went home. Now, if you're following along in your own Bible, you've already picked up that there is a problem here. If you're following along on the screens, then you should know there's a problem here. Uh, Back in the first century, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the Apostle Paul, Peter, Jesus, half-brother James, and others, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, wrote down the things that we would need to know and to believe and obey God. And in the process, the Holy Spirit kept their writings free from error. This divine truth was preserved in ink on papyrus. And because the early church recognized the value of these writings as the inerrant word of God given through these men, they immediately went down to Kinko's and made thousands of copies to distribute among the churches. Okay, I've obviously made up the Kinko's part. But what did happen was that copyists made copies by hand for distribution to the churches. Then copies were made of the copies, and copies were made of the copied copies, and so on and so forth, until there were literally hundreds and then thousands of copies floating around the Mediterranean basin. The original scrolls deteriorated over time and are now long gone. And in the process, uh, in the process, the process of copying was imperfect. An an added word here, a dropped word there, some letters confused with others. If you've ever tried to read grandma's handwriting, you know what I mean. Uh, My kids still have trouble reading uh, what she writes to them. And honestly, so do I. So 
then these small errors in one manuscript became part of the next cycle of copying. Occasionally, a scribe would accidentally create an error by trying to fix an earlier mistake, or what he thought was a mistake. Sometimes leaders would make margin notes in the text that the scribe thought was an error correction. And then that margin note became part of the next cycle of copies. Now, many centuries later, we have more than 5,000 manuscripts or fragments of manuscripts, all of them containing a portion of the original words of the New Testament. It's not as bad as it sounds, though. The process has given us the New Testament. And the vast majority of errors are small enough that the meaning of the text hasn't been affected. In cases where the meaning of the text has been affected, the sheer number of manuscripts available to analyze makes it pretty easy to determine what the correct text should say. And there are people who have spent their lives analyzing and comparing thousands of these ancient copies in order to ensure that we have the original text of Scripture. By virtue of the times we live in, with the technology available to us today, scholars today have access to thousands of these original manuscripts to proof text their work. Compare that with the good old King James Version, which only had a handful of copies to work from. And as a result, the Bibles we have today are extremely reliable copies of the original texts. They are as close to accurate as any church would have had back in the first century. And where there, are, where, where there have been historical issues, like we discovered last week and like we see here, modern translators have made sure to note those issues in some way for full disclosure. Which brings us back to verse 53 and the first 11 verses of chapter 8 and why our Bibles have this big notation. The story of the woman caught in adultery is one of the most loved stories of Jesus. However, it does not appear at all in the earliest manuscripts of John. And later copies put this story in a variety of places. There's even one family of manuscripts that puts it after Luke 21:38. Also complicating things, even more, the vocabulary and style of the, the passage to people who understand vocabulary and style do not match the rest of John's gospel. So it is clearly not a part of John's original gospel. It is possible this encounter actually occurred and was preserved outside of the gospels in some form only to be included later. But since it doesn't appear in any manuscripts until the 6th century, and even then with a special, a special notation indicating doubt, I doubt it. Well, not only me, but the people whose pay grade is far above mine. Nothing in this encounter contradicts anything we know about Jesus. It is certainly consistent with the character and teachings of Jesus and reflects his attitude toward the hypocrisy of the Jewish leaders at the time. And many fine Christian scholars consider this story to be authentic. However, we really shouldn't consider it to be a part of the original text. Had it been, it would have been certified, inspired, and error-free by the Holy Spirit. But that doesn't mean it can't be helpful or worthy of consideration. Now, we've got a lot more to cover today, and since I spent quite a bit of time unpacking this story just a few weeks ago, let me suggest that you look up the February 6th message, Lies Men Believe, if you'd like to refresh yourself. 
What this story does illustrate is the first of five contrasts in this chapter. Basically, this, this woman is a, the sacrificial lamb of the Jewish leaders. They're trying to trap Jesus, and she is just a pawn in their game, a means to an end. She's been caught in, adultery, in, in the act of adultery, and according to Jewish law, both she and her fellow adulterer should be put to death, although he is weirdly absent from this scene. Uh, if Jesus condemns her, they can make him look bad because the Romans didn't allow the Jews to carry out a capital punishment. If he doesn't condemn her, they can make him look bad because he is soft on crime. Jesus is Jesus. He, ne he neither condemns nor condones. He meets her in the perfect intersection of guilt and grace. So this first contrast is between grace and the law, or grace and legalism, as we talked about last week. Again, it's consistent with what we know about Jesus, but didn't come from John. So now let's jump to verse 12. Jesus spoke to the people once more and said, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. Now, verse 12 picks up where 752 left off. Because of everything we've just discussed, this should actually be verse 1. But no one put me in charge of verse numbering, so it's verse 12. Jesus is still in Jerusalem celebrating the festival of shelters. Uh, John indicates a change in scene with the words, once more. Uh, since the festival was a week-long event, these particular discourses generally took place over the course of several days and may have even been repeated several times as temple visitors came and went. The contrast here is between light and darkness. Now, this is also the second of seven I am statements that John records for us. The first was in your homework last week where Jesus said, I am the bread of life. For the Jews, the sun was the symbol of Jehovah God. For our galaxy, there is only one sun. As the center, everything revolves around it. It's the source of all life. There is only one God who is the center and source of all life. John clearly states that God is light in 1 John 1, 5. Here, I am the light of the world is another instance of Jesus claiming to be God. Where, wherever the light shines, it reveals the wickedness that thrives in the dark. Uh, I am the light is also a reference to the Feast of Shelters and the candles that symbolically reminded the Jews of the pillar of fire leading them through the desert. In fact, as we'll see in verse 20, at this moment, Jesus stood near the temple treasury, which was located in the court of women. And each evening during the Feast of Shelters, after the evening sacrifice, but before sunset, priests entered the court of women to light from two to four sh giant chandelier lampstands. So perhaps Jesus said these words as these lights were beginning to burn in the background. Uh, for those of you who want extra credit, you might scroll back to John 6 and 7 to find the references to manna and water from the, uh, water from the rock, two more wilderness images. To follow Christ results in life and light for the believer. 
The unsaved are walking in darkness because they love the darkness. Now, as is usually the case, the Pharisees have a go at Jesus. Uh, This time in verse 13, the Pharisees replied, you are making these claims, those claims about yourself. Such testimony is not valid. Now, we talked about this last week. A defendant can't provide the only testimony in a Jewish court and have it be accepted as fact. They can't bear witness to themselves, which is what these Jewish leaders were claiming Jesus was trying to do. Jesus told them, these claims are valid even though I make them about myself. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you don't know this about me. You judge me by human standards, but I do not judge anyone. And if I did, my judgment would be correct in every respect, because I am not alone. The Father who sent me is with me. Your own law says that if two people agree about something, their witness is accepted as fact. I am one witness, and my Father who sent me is the other. Where is your Father? they asked. Jesus answered, since you don't know who I am, you don't know who my father is. If you knew me, you would also know my father. Jesus made these statements while he was teaching in the section of the temple known as the treasury. But he was not arrested because his time had not yet come. Now, what Jesus is saying is that light essentially uh, bears witness to itself. Light bears witness to itself. Uh, If you've ever looked out the window of an airplane, even at 35,000 feet, you can see the lights of big cities at night. Uh, Having been to South America lots of times, I've seen the lights of cities in Cuba, Colombia, Bolivia, and other countries as we've flown to Buenos Aires. Light bears witness to itself. It tells you where it is. Only blind people can't see it. Now, while they questioned his witness... Jesus did the same of them. In the original language, the word for witness is used seven times. Uh, Jesus made it clear that their witness was faulty because their judgment was faulty. They could only judge by looking at the outside, but Jesus looked uh, and judged from the inside. Jesus' statement that if you knew me, you would know my Father, is Jesus' declaration of himself as the means of knowing God. Uh, Later in John, in chapter 14, John will write that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. Uh, This is a less obvious to us way of saying the same thing. It's a truth that most of us just accept on this side of the resurrection, but at the time probably gave these Jewish leaders heart palpitations. Okay, uh, let's move on to the next contrast, life and death. Verse 21. Later, Jesus said to them again, I, I'm going away. You will search for me, but you will die in your sin. You cannot come where I am going. Now, when you work your way through chapter 7, you'll see that this is the second time that Jesus mentioned leaving them, but they misunderstood. Uh, The people asked, Is he planning to commit suicide? What does he mean? You cannot come where I am going. 
Uh, the Jews were taught to value life, so the idea of suicide was abhorrent to them. Uh, if that was his plan, then he would be going to his place of judgment, which is why they believed, he said, they couldn't follow him. Of course, just the opposite was true. It was them who would stand under judgment. Jesus continued, you are from below. I am from above. You belong to this world. I do not. That is why I said you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am who I claim to be, you will die in your sins. Now, the reason Jesus and the Jewish leaders would have different destinations is because they have different origins. Jesus came from heaven. They belong to earth. We know from other places in the New Testament that those of us who believe in Jesus have also now been reborn in heaven and no longer belong to this world. But clearly that wasn't the case for these Jewish leaders or anyone apart from Christ for that matter. They are still blind and in the dark. Verse 25. Who are you? They demanded. Jesus replied, The one I have always claimed to be. I have much to say about you and much to condemn, but I won't. For I only say what I have heard from the one who sent me, and he is completely truthful. But they still didn't understand that he was talking about his father. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man on the cross, then you will understand that I am he. I do nothing on my own, but say only what the Father taught me. And the one who sent me is with me. He has not deserted me, for I always do what pleases him. Then many who heard him say these things believed in him. You know, we've seen enough police dramas to imagine a suspect sweating it out during hours of questioning by detectives. They keep asking the same question different ways, hoping to trip up their perp. That's what this is beginning to feel like to me. These Jewish leaders keep questioning Jesus, but keep getting the same impossible-to-be-true-for-them answer. A Warren Wearsby writes, salvation is a matter of life or death. People who live in their sins and reject the Savior must die in their sins. There is no alternative. We either receive salvation by grace or experience condemnation under God's law. We either walk in the light and have eternal life or we walk in the darkness and experience eternal death. We either have life or death. Uh, moving on to our next contrast, we likely have another change of scenes. Now, this is when it's helpful to remember that John isn't telling us a chronological story of Jesus. He's weaving a case, working to convince us that Jesus is God in the flesh, and we should entrust our lives to him. So he's pooling the evidence necessary to build the strongest case possible. So in what could be another change of scenes like the next day at the festival in verse 31. Jesus said to the people who believed in him, you are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So the fourth contrast is freedom and bondage. Uh, there were more than just Jewish leaders in the crowd. There were lots of normal people like you and me, and many of them were convinced by what he had to say. To them, belief was not the end of something, but the beginning of a journey of obedience, a birth after which growth must follow, and with growth comes freedom. 
which was confusing, no surprise, to the Jewish leaders wandering in the dark. They replied in verse 33, but we're descendants of Abraham, they said. We have never been slaves to anyone. What do you mean we will be set free? Okay, if I were Jesus in this moment, I would have wanted to say, really? That's where you want to go? I mean, here we are in Jerusalem, literally celebrating 40 years of God's provision as he led you from f to freedom from slavery in Egypt. And you say you've never been slaves? Come on, people. Have you never read the, the books of history? Remember Judges. You were enslaved by seven mighty nations then. You were enslaved by Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Macedonia, Syria, and even now you're complaining about Rome. Fortunately, Jesus is far more mature than I am. Of course, there is a difference between spiritual freedom and bondage. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave of sin. A slave is not a permanent member of the family, but a son is part of the family forever. So if the son sets you free, you are truly free. A servant may live in the house, but that doesn't make them a member of the family. There, there is no guaranteed future. Uh, this is why we are called children of God. We are part of the family. Now, in the rest of this section, you see a debate centering around the word father. Jesus is identifying himself with the father in heaven and them with the, their father in hell. They tried to identify themselves with Abraham, but Jesus cleared that one up nicely by differentiating between physical and spiritual descendants of Abraham, of which they were missing the boat on the most important one. And, dare I say, Abraham would be mortified by their behavior. They weren't acting very Abraham-like. He was a friend of God. The worst kind of bondage is bondage that even the prisoner doesn't recognize. Yet he thinks he's free, but he's really a slave. Jesus is the only way to freedom. So let's drop down to verse 48 for our last contrast. The people retorted, you Samaritan devil. Now remember that the Jews hated the Samaritans and vice versa. Samaritans were people with one Jewish parent and one Gentile parent. Uh, they were basically half-breeds. Basically, this is a racial slur, which wasn't even true of Jesus. <laughs> you Samaritan devil. Didn't we say all along that you were possessed by a demon? Not only a stupid half-breed, but a demon-possessed one at that. Of course, in his response, Jesus doesn't stoop to their level. No, Jesus said, I have no demon in me, for I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. And though I have no wish to glorify myself, God is going to glorify me. He is the true judge. I tell you the truth, anyone who obeys my teaching will never die. So our last contrast, honor and dishonor. Jesus was honoring his father. They were dishonoring Jesus. Verse 52, the people said, now we know you are possessed by a demon. Even Abraham and the prophets died, but you say anyone who obeys my teaching will never die. Are you greater than our father Abraham? 
He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Now, Jesus was claiming to be the Lord of death, of course, making himself God in the process. But it wasn't an honor he gave himself. Jesus answered, if I want to glorify, want glory for myself, it doesn't count. But it is my Father who will glorify me. You say he is our God, but you don't even know him. I know him. If I said otherwise, I would be as great a liar as you. But I do know him and obey him. Your father Abraham rejoiced as he looked forward to my coming. He saw it and was glad. Now, God never gave Abraham a special vision of Jesus' life and ministry. But he did give Abraham the spiritual perception to see these future events through the events of his own life. In the miraculous birth of Isaac, Abraham saw the birth of the Messiah. In offering Isaac as a sacrifice, he received a picture of Calvary. In the priest Melchizedek, he received uh, a, the, a picture of the priesthood of the Lord. And in the marriage of Isaac to Rebekah, a picture of the marriage of the Lamb. All of this seen by faith. Now this chapter ends with, uh, the people said, you aren't even 50 years old. How can you say you've seen Abraham? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. Before Abraham was even born, I am. Now at that point, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus was hidden from them and left the temple. Uh, another affirmation of his divine nature as the Son of God who was God. And by their reaction, they understood exactly what Jesus was saying and didn't like it one bit. Fortunately, it was not yet Jesus' time to die. Now, most of us here in the room, most of you watching online, have already made your decision to follow Christ with your lives. For us, these contrasts have become aspirational. Uh, that is, we aspire to walk in grace over the law. And we want to walk more and more in the light as we allow it to shine in the dark places of our lives. You know, the ones that we've been hanging on to for some reason. Maybe it's because we, we want life, but we're still drawn to death. <laughs> Maybe it's because we've gotten our freedom and bondage mixed up. Whatever it looks like, we aspire to honor Christ with all of our lives. For us, th these are some word pictures to help us come around that thing that keeps you from consistently walking in faith. You know what I'm talking about. God has brought it to mind, even as I'm talking. Choose grace. Love light. Embrace life. Dance in freedom. Honor God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And some of you are still dead like the Jewish leaders. You've never stepped into grace or the light or life as Jesus intended it for you. You're stuck in bondage and dishonor. You have the same choice as the Jewish leaders. Choose wisely. Your eternity hangs in the balance. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we have light through Jesus. Thank you that that life, 
that light means that, that the life means that we get to, to experience life in the light, in freedom, with joy and knowing that you are God in control and knowing that uh, however messy things get in this world, we have an eternity that will be far longer in, in time than what this life looks like. And even in this life, we don't walk alone. We get to experience the ups and downs, the valleys and mountains with Jesus. Who works all things according to, uh, all things for our good according to his glory and your purposes. Father, I know that all of us have that thing. We have that thing that for some reason we just can't give up. We can't stop. We don't want to stop, maybe. But we need to stop. And even now in these moments, Father, unleash the power of the Holy Spirit in us to to bring life. Father, it's likely that there are people watching, people here in the room who have yet to enter into a relationship with Jesus. May this be the day. And for you, just say yes. Yes, I believe in Jesus. Yes, I believe that he is God come to save and that on my own I can't get there. I I could never have a relationship with God because my sin will keep me from that without Jesus. So say yes and then pursue Jesus with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Father, we invite you to do what you want to do in each one of us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. Let me encourage you to download the study questions by selecting Watch from the top menu of our website. Working through those questions alone or with others will help the truth of God's Word find its place in your life. Please reach out if you have any questions or want help on your spiritual journey. My email address is on the screen, or you can call the church during the week. This ministry is made possible because of people like you, people who believe in what God is doing through Dayspring. Your financial generosity is proof of God's work in your life. If you're just checking us out today, please know that we don't expect you to give anything to support Dayspring. That is the responsibility of our Dayspringers. Just enjoy the rest of your day. If you'd like to start giving, we have three easy ways for you to get us your gift. Please see the online giving section of our website or text GIVE to the number on your screen or mail a check to us at the address you'll find on our website. Also, thank you for liking and sharing and following Dayspring on whatever platform you're on. It means a lot to me when you pass on the good news of Jesus to your friends and family. Until next week, may you experience God's favor and blessing in your life.